0: This podcast is brought to you by Introduction to Democracy Studies, an undergraduate course at the Department of International Relations, Universitas de Mada. Hi, let's look more into theories of democratization, especially those that emphasize on economic development. Amongst the first to examine the relationship between development and democracy is Seymour Martin Lipset. In 1959, he argues that, I quote, the more well-to-do a nation, the greater the chances that it will sustain democracy, end quote. He tested this hypothesis by looking at the levels of wealth, industrialization, urbanization, and education in democratic and non-democratic countries in Europe and Latin America. He finds that increases in wealth lead to democracy through 1. Integrating the lower strata into the wider society. 2. Widening the middle class. 3. Forcing the upper class to respect the political rights of the lower strata. 4. Increasing the nation's political tolerance. 5. Enabling the creation of an effective bureaucracy. And 6. Fostering a vibrant civil society. Adam Seworski, Fernando Limongi, Michael Alvarez, and Jose Antonio Chebop challenge Lipset's hypothesis. They note that the positive correlation between economic development and democracy can be interpreted in at least two ways. Number one, that economic development increases the likelihood that poor countries undergo a transition to democracy, which is an endogenous theory. And number two, that development makes democracies less likely to turn into autocracies, which is an exogenous theory. They show that the endogenous theory fails while the exogenous one holds. In other words, they argue that an increase in per capita income does not make an authoritarian country more likely to transition to democracy, but does make an already democratic country more likely to remain democratic. Charles Box and Susan Stokes in 2003 showed that the endogenous theory actually holds by criticizing Jaworski's et cetera's work both on the theoretical and empirical grounds. On the theoretical realm, they note that Seworski and friends Only provide an analysis on how actors strategically interact in a democracy without any analysis on that of in an autocracy. Box and Stokes sketch out a game tree for each setting and show that number one, in a democracy, increased income increases the stability of a democracy and two, in an autocracy, increased income increases the incentives for the ruling faction to democratize. On the empirical realm, box and Stokes find Seworkis and friends problematic in three fronts. First, Countries that Seworski's and friends count as developed under authoritarianism and became modern are those that reached a per capita income of four thousand one hundred fifteen U.S. dollar, thus excluding those that managed to move from a per capita income of one thousand U.S. dollar to two thousand U.S. dollar, from two thousand U.S. dollar to three thousand U.S. dollar, and so on. Boaks and Stokes support the endogenous theory by underlining that the reason why there is only a few autocracies among countries with high level of income is because development at levels of income under 4,115 US dollar already helped turn autocracies into democracies and helped them remain democratic. Second, the dataset made by Pseworski and friends only covers the period between 1950 and 1990. By broadening their dataset to 1850 to 1990, Boaks and Stokes show that the endogenous theory holds, but is less salient when the examination is limited to a post-1950 sample. They assert that this is because 1. Countries that were economically developed by 1950 were already democratic by 1950. And 2. Countries that were not economically developed by 1950 either A. did not develop enough to allow themselves to embark upon democratization or B. cannot democratize because of some exogenous variables, for example, Soviet domination. Third, Jaworski and friends omitted variables such as international politics and factor endowment. Bowaks and Stokes show that by controlling for those variables, the endogenous theory holds. David Epstein, Robert Bates, Jack Goldstone, Ida Christensen, Sharon O'Halloran also provide support for the endogenous theory. They do so by replicating Jaworski's and friends' regression but applying a trichotomous measure of their independent variable which is democracy, partial democracy, and autocracy. By disaggregating full and partial democracies, Epstein and friends show that higher per capita income significantly increases the likelihood of democracy, I quote, both by enhancing the consolidation of existing democracies and by promoting transitions from authoritarian to democratic systems end quote. while proving that increased income per capita, thus increase both the likelihood of an autocracy to transition to democracy and the likelihood of a democracy to remain democratic, Boak's and Stokes specify that what really causes those is income equality. Here begins a stream of research focusing on the effect of economic inequality to democratization. It's important to note here that Boak's, Stokes, Acemoglu, Robinson, Howell, Haggard, Kaufman, Theo, and other scholars are mindful of the precondition versus agency approaches in the earlier studies of democratization. Hence, while taking on a macrostructural factor such as inequality, they also look into strategic interactions among political actors. Their studies look at democratization as distributive conflict. They perceive pro- and anti-democracy aspirations as conflict over wealth and income distributions between elites and masses. The basic ideas of this framework are that, number one, the elites find resource distribution schemes under authoritarianism more favorable while the masses find resource distribution schemes under democracy more favorable. Two, there is a certain cost in pursuing and maintaining the more favorable redistribution scheme. And number three, the actors' preferences are shaped not only by their cost and benefit calculation, but also their expectation of the other actors' move. Building upon Boax’s previous work, BOACs and Stokes note that per capita income increases in countries where they are becoming more equal. Their tests show that 1. The statistical significance of per capita income is lessened upon introducing the index of education, suggesting that per capita income is serving as a proxy of other more fundamental factors, while number two, economic equality enhances the chances of transitions to democracy as well as the stability of democracy. In other words, per capita income is merely a proxy for a fundamental factor, that is equality. Boax elaborates that when equality is high, Elites, the rich, are less likely to democratize because they fear redistribution. As the country gets wealthier, redistribution becomes less expensive for elites, which makes elites more willing to tolerate democracy. Meanwhile, in democracies with high level of inequality, citizens have high incentives to revolt and elites have high incentives to Ally against the incumbents in hope of reimposing authoritarianism. Darren Achemoglu and James Robinson in 1996 analyzed democratic transition within a framework of redistributive conflict, where democracy is, I quote, a credible commitment by elites to avoid revolution, end quote. They argue that the relationship between Economic inequality and transition to democracy is not linear, but that of an inverted U-shape. When economic inequality is low, citizens have little incentive to revolt because the potential redistribution and expropriation gains are low. When economic inequality is high, elites prefer to repress citizens' revolt because the cost of repression is significantly lower than the cost of redistribution. It is in countries with middle level of inequality that democracy has the best chance to emerge. This is because I quote Citizens are not totally satisfied with the existing systems, and the elites are not so averse to democracy that they resort to repression to prevent it. In Acemoglu and Robinson's study, the relationship between economic inequality and democratic consolidation is also that of an inverted U-shape. When inequality is high, democracy does not consolidate because elites have high incentives for mounting a coup against the system that forces them to redistribute more. When inequality is lower, democracy does consolidate because it is not so costly for elites. In 2009, Christian Howell criticizes Box and Stokes logic and states that as equality increases, the masses become less likely to demand for distribution. He also criticizes Acemoglu and Robinson by indicating that their model failed to take into account, one, the cost of repression in authoritarian countries where inequality is low, however low that cost is, Number two, that the cost of elites' repression depends on the intensity of the masses' demands. And three, the collective action problem that the masses have to overcome. Howell's study shows that inequality has no effect on democratization. He points at how unequal countries like Nigeria, Peru, and Turkey were able to democratize despite oscillating back and forth between dictatorship and democracy. He compares these countries with equal countries like Costa Rica, India, and Mauritius, which manage to democratize and remain democratic. This yields an insight that inequality has no effect on democratization, but helps countries to remain democratic. Building upon the democratic experiences of Latin American countries, Robert Kaufman challenges the inequality-discourages-democracy hypothesis. First, he points out that all democratic transitions in Latin America took place when inequality was very high and was increasing. Second, his Pearson correlation test shows that High inequality does not impose an insuperable barrier to democratic stability. Third, he questions the logic behind the distributive conflict framework utilized by POAX and Stokes, as well as by Achimoglu and Robinson. Hoffman reminds that, while it is plausible to think that the poor will demand for economic redistribution, various factors may drive them to other directions. They may, number one, be unaware of the level of income inequality, for example, when it is muted by racial prejudice or religious beliefs that cut across class lines, two, see the economic disparity as justifiable rewards for effort and skill, three, doubt that the government has the capability to address this issue, four, find other non-economic issues more pressing, or five, have positive expectations of upward mobility, thus are happier and are more able to tolerate economic inequality. He suggests that future research take into consideration, one, that reactions to economic inequality partly depends on how individuals are embedded in the frameworks of relationships to neighborhoods, ethnic and religious communities, or partisan groups, and two, that The dynamics of change in political institutions. He also points at various empirical studies which show that, one, poor people do not necessarily vote for higher taxes on the rich, two, discontent over inequality does not necessarily push voters to reject an incumbent politician, and three, there is no systemic relation between inequality and left voting. Furthermore, with Stephen Haggard, Kaufman performed a medium-end analysis on the relationship between inequality and democracy. First, they apply within-case analysis to quote, I quote, whether and to what extent individual cases conform with the stipulated causal logic, end quote. Then, they analyze the aggregate of the individual causal process observation, They find that only 55 to 58 percent of the transitions during the third wave of democratization conform to the causal mechanisms stipulated in the distributive conflict models, meaning that over 40 percent did not conform at all. They also find that about 30 percent of all transitions take place in countries that are in the top terrestrial in terms of economic inequality. And a majority of these were brought about by distributive conflicts. Despite the findings, Haggard and Kaufman do not dismiss the distributive conflict framework altogether. They suggest that scholars, one, look for other ways as to how economic inequality influences the stability of a democracy, for example, through the weak democracy syndrome or Number two, specify the conditions as to when economic inequality affects transition and consolidation of democracy, for example, upon overcoming collective action problems. In their earlier study, Haggard and Kaufman established that successful transitions and consolidations depend on how good a country's institutional arrangements manage economic crisis. When countries endure weak economic performances or prolonged economic distress, their political institutions can be drained of their democratic content. This means that countries enduring economic hardship may have to face more apathy, less participation, more social violence, etc., which in the long run erode democracy, I quote, through intermittent repression of opposition groups, emergency measures, and a decline in the integrity of legal guarantees, end quote, and finally render electoral institutions merely as a facade. Here, inequality may impede consolidation if political institutions fail to address the challenges of economic reforms. To conclude, There seems to be mixed findings on the relationship between equality and democratization. What do you think about this?